Would you please join me as I pray? Father, we've just heard these verses read over us. We are in this place singing praises to you, preparing our hearts to receive from you, encountering you by your spirit alive in the, amidst your people. And so we come to this moment and say, God, would you speak? We have confidence that you have spoken, God, that in these scriptures we have spirit-inspired words. And my request now is that by the power of your spirit, you would be present in this room pressing this particular word into our lives in a way that leaves us transformed. God, that we would come with anticipation and eagerness, that we would engage with your word, each of us actively, trusting that you will challenge and change and speak to us. I pray particularly in the place in our hearts where we feel the cold, calculating criticism the judgment, the ways that we can so quickly put someone else in a particular category to dismiss them. or I pray, God, that where that is alive in us as a people, that you would challenge it, that you would call us to lay it down, and that in its place as a result of being here, God, that we would be more truly a family marked by concern for one another, willing to do the good, humble, hard work of loving and creating community, even in the place where there's challenge. So God, deliver us from our critical spirit and help us to live into a beautiful kingdom alternative. We pray that you do it by your spirit today in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So research shows that within three to 30 seconds, you make a judgment about the person that you're meeting or you're interacting with, that you start to put them into the category in your mind that makes sense, maybe to dismiss them, maybe to lean in and pay attention. And so that means that if you're new, I'm locked in. <laughs> That's it. That's all I got. Uh, because it, sometimes it has to do with the shirt or the shoes. It has to do with the smile or the not smile, the stooped shoulders. The, there's something where we quickly make a judgment and we make decisions about people. We, we make judgments because in many ways, I, the, the, the rapidity with which we make that judgment is different today than it was previously because we're so inundated by messages and so many of them are visual that in order just to survive, it's almost a self-preservation that in order to discern who's going to get my attention and my focus and what's not going to get my attention and my focus, we have to make snap judgments all day long about what am I going to pay attention to. And as a result, something that is very natural is snap critique. Very quickly, we make judgments. And, and the struggle is this, that hiding beneath that propensity is the, is the potential to become hypercritical, maybe even cynical, where we start deciding very quickly who's worth our time and who isn't. And it's it's into this place this morning that Jesus wants to speak, and we may be tempted at the outset of thinking about criticality. We may be tempted to, to draw a few people to mind that we think of as critical. You know, that coworker, that friend, a family member, maybe the in-laws, and we think, oh yeah, there's someone in my life, that person, they're hypercritical. 
And you may be tempted to listen thinking about this person in the back of your mind. And I just want to hit pause on that at the outset and and invite you to ask the more difficult, challenging question. Who are you most tempted to dismiss and to categorize? Where do you find yourself making really quick, internal, critical assessments in a way that robs you from connection with people around you? Because it's into that place that Jesus is going to speak today. We're, we're continuing to study the Sermon on the Mount. We're kind of in the home stretch of this sermon that we've been studying for months together. And in this home stretch today, he's, he's going to do what he has been doing throughout. We, we actually call the series, I See Things Upside Down, because Jesus over and over is bumping into the realities of our life, and he's speaking about what would it look like to be kingdom people as it relates to this particular issue. And each time that Jesus speaks, we realize that he sees the world with these eternal eyes that feel so inverted from what comes naturally to us. And as it relates to interacting with other people, Jesus is going to break into that really rapid cycle that happens in our minds and our hearts where we're tempted to be hypercritical and put someone in their place and keep moving. And Jesus is going to say, what would it look like to lay down your, your inner critic? to lay down harsh criticism and snap judgments and in its place to pick up familial concern and care. This is going to be the invitation that he's, in, he's pressing us into with this kingdom ethic today. So I want to invite you into that journey with me as we try to make sense of what do we mean by this, this harsh criticism and what would it look like to lay it down and then what would it look like to take up a beautiful kingdom alternative of familial concern in its place. So let's dig in and see if we can make sense of this together. Starting in verse 1 and 2, why is it that Jesus is so urgent for us to lay down our harsh criticism? Look back at verse 1 and 2 with me. It says this, Judge not that you be not judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Right off the bat, as Jesus begins to articulate what it looks like for people interacting with one another and inviting them to lay down their judgment, I think he is pressing us towards this reality. The the first reason that we need to be urgent about laying down harsh criticism is that it's dangerous territory. It's dangerous territory. This word for judge means means literally to, to discern quickly right and wrong, to put things in their place. It means that you are judge and jury immediately on circumstances and on people that you interact with. And Jesus is saying, be careful and coming quickly to conclusions because the same measure you use will be measured against you. You should hear danger, warning signs. The, the measure that you are internally applying to everyone around you, he's saying is the measure that will be used against you. Well, used by whom? This should be the question that we're asking. And some have said, well, maybe it means other people, that if I have a hypercritical spirit, I will consistently be inviting that out of the world around me. And I think that is probably practically true, that if you're a very critical person, it will probably sow the seeds of criticality into your life in lots of ways. But I don't think that's what Jesus is primarily speaking about. The rest of the New Testament is going to make it clear that the way that we judge others has some sort of meaningful connection to the way God is going to judge us. There's a couple other places in the New Testament. I just want us to lay our eyes on this and feel the danger, the warning signs. 
the, the first two are references from Paul that I want us to look at. Um, so Paul, in speaking about judgment in Romans 14 and 1 Corinthians 4, says this. He says, why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or you, why do you despise your brother? So he's, he's challenging his readers to say, stop and consider, why is it that you despise them? He says, for we are all going to stand before the judgment seat of God. So do you hear he's saying, in in exercising judgment on others, you're actually taking God's place, when in reality, he's going to tend to them and he's going to tend to you. The way that he says it in 1 Corinthians 4 is, therefore do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things that are now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. So you get the sense that first he's saying, hey, be patient. God sees and he's going to judge. Your desire to be critical and discern quickly is not helpful because God is at work. James, Jesus' brother, pushes it a little bit further. Let's see this. James 4, it says this, There is only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and to destroy, but who are you to judge your neighbor? And then finally in chapter 5, verse 9, Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. I, I read all those to you to, to just feel the weight of what the New Testament is saying throughout. There is a judge, and he is not you. And the invitation is to recognize that as you adopt this posture and position of coming up with the judgments on others, that you're missing so much about the context, and you yourself are judging in such a way, it says, back to what Jesus said, he says, the measure you're using will be used against you. The judge is standing at the door and paying attention. And the way that you meet it out will be, will be turned on you. And the struggle is we never judge with an awareness of context, do we? For me, it's, it's like merging in traffic on 59 right down by Maine. Now, maybe you've, been, you've driven along there right where there's, there's this lane on the right side where they start posting signs, lane ends, merge left, and it goes for about a half a mile. And the traffic always stacks up there because it's narrowing. And so I'll always be in this, this lane, and, uh, and people are flying by, one after another, right past the signs. Phew, phew. And in my head and heart, I'm always like, those stinking people. They just think their time is so much more valuable than my time. They think they're so important, so into themselves. You know, I'm like, how dare they? I'll even pull this move. Uh, this is a safe place, right? <laughs> I'll, even, I'll even do the pull over halfway into both lanes. <laughs> so it starts backing up. Yeah, Kaylee feels me. You've done it. Yeah. They start backing up here, and then I don't want to look in the rear view because I don't want to make eye contact, but I'm just sitting there like, hey, this is fair. This is, just, this is just fair. Except that that's the route to pick up my kids if I'm coming from my office. And uh, I've been late to pick up my kids before. So I got over in this right lane and just, pew, right? And the whole time as I'm flying past everyone, I'm thinking, they just don't understand. I'm a good dad. I, I can't just leave my kids standing outside of class, can I? Like, you would understand if you just knew what I was going through. Isn't that the way that it works? Like, God, what, what God is inviting us into is saying, slow down. There's a judge who sees all of the variables. 
He actually sees the context. He sees what people are going through. And you're entering into dangerous territory because you always give yourself some leeway that you don't give to others. You always understand the context and the ways that have informed how you're responding. But, but for the others, well, well, certainly theirs is malicious intent. And we very quickly want to, to, to kind of mete out the judgment based off of our very limited perspective. This is dangerous territory. But it's not just dangerous, it's also foolish. It's like absurdly foolish to engage in this sort of activity. And this is the way Jesus says it in verse 3 and 4. He says, why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye? But you don't notice that the log is in your own eye. Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is a log in your own eye? Jesus is speaking hyperbolically and humorously. I think this sermon would have been much, much longer than the version we get. Jesus would have probably preached for significant periods of time with large crowds out on this, on this hillside, but we get kind of the Cliff Notes version, the kernel version. But I think in the telling of this story, Jesus was probably filling in with detail, talking about having grown up a, with a carpenter, having been apprenticed in, in the space where a carpenter does his work, and he's painting this picture of just absolute absurdity of someone coming in. The word for log here is a weight-bearing beam. It would have been one of the beams that you would, in building a structure that would be able to support the weight of the roof or of a second story. And what he's saying is, imagine someone coming into the carpentry shop with one of those sticking out of their face. You know, you're coming in like with this. Jesus is telling the story in such a way that people are like, this is absurd. And that's the point. He's like, yeah, this person's got a problem. They're not okay. And now he's saying, and now imagine that they're trying to go, hey, I think you got something in your eye. He's going, he's intentionally telling the story in such a way that people would be laughing. They'd be participating and be like, that is absurd, Jesus, right? Because he's wanting them to feel how outrageous this sort of activity is, how foolish it is to smuggle our critical spirit into relational exchanges. And he says it's foolish for two reasons. It's foolish because it impairs the way that you see and the way that you speak. Look back at verse 3 and 4 with these words highlighted. He asked this question, why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but you don't notice what's in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye? One of the ways that you can identify this absurdly foolish, critical spirit in your own heart and life is by paying attention to how you see and how you speak. What do you notice? The first word for see is this idea of he's just surveying the landscape and he's seeing what's going on with everyone else. The second word, what he says you haven't done with yourself, is a stronger word. Why have you not noticed your own log? And the word for notice means to like set with singular vision, to pay full attention, to comprehend what's going on. Jesus is saying, in essence, until you've made sense of the fullness of your own reality, paying attention to what you're delivering into the space, you're not going to see clearly. I went and sat with a coach and a mentor a couple of years ago. I was working through some things, both in my marriage and in my leadership, things where I had all of these concerns, quite frankly, about what was going on with other people. 
And I sat with him and I shared my concerns and trying to figure out, you know, how can I fix this? What do I do to make all these things right? And he sat and he listened and said, okay, mm-hmm, okay, taking notes and asking questions, okay, yeah. And then at the end, he did this like Jedi move. Maybe you've had a friend or a mentor like this where you think they're like totally with you and they're on your team and then you realize like, ooh, <laughs> you're actually dealing with the, the real issue. He did this little pew. He said, hey, I'm just going to draw a picture real quick. Here's your life. And he drew a simple two by two. He said, this is you and you exist in these four quadrants. In the top left, this is what you know and what other people know. That's what's in the light. That's, that's good. Here's what you know and others, or pardon me, what, what you know and other people don't know. This is what's in the shadows. That's dangerous. And he said, and then you've got these other two, two boxes. The third one is what other people know that you don't know. He said, those are your blind spots. And you could tell there's like a little pause. I just poured out of my heart all these things. He's like, those are your blind spots. I was like, mm-hmm. Keep going. Yeah, okay. And he says, in this fourth one, this is your mystery box. This is stuff about you that you don't know, and by the way, no one else knows either. He said, we operate through life like most of our life is unfolding in box one and two. He said, but the truth is, so much of your life are in boxes three and four. And I was still totally dense to what the man was saying to me. I was like, okay, yeah, I guess. I'm not sure I really follow, but okay. And then he said, I want you to start exploring box three and four. And he was equipping me with questions to ask and things to think about, ways to pray and invite the Holy Spirit in to reveal things about me that I was unaware of, questions to ask friends and of, of family members about ways that they experienced me and they received me. And all of a sudden, as I started doing my homework... I realized that I was so bound up with all of this stuff, seeing all of the sawdust in people's lives. And when I actually started doing the work, I realized that the vast majority of my life was in box three and four. I didn't know what I didn't know. And when I started to actually pay attention, there was this deep sense of, oh, what folly. And the way that I have been so aware of the weakness and the missteps of everyone else. And I haven't realized the ways I've been sowing it into the world all around me. You see, he's actually saying, would you pause and take a much longer and harder look at your own heart and life, particularly when you notice something about someone else that annoys you or that causes you to think that they have totally missed the boat or they're unhealthy or, well, I'm really worried about them. In that moment, there might be legitimate concern, but hit pause and turn that searchlight around and start searching, particularly boxes two and three and four, all the stuff that's hiding in the shadows and say, ooh, there's more truth. The thing that's unnerving me about this other person is actually profoundly true of me. And then we begin to realize that it's foolish, not just in the way that we see, but actually in the way that we speak. He says, here we are, we're seeing all this stuff, and we're saying to people, hey, you want me to help you with your sawdust? You know? And he's going, when the, when the beam is emerging from your eyeball, and you're trying to swipe the sawdust from a friend, what you are saying in that moment is incredibly foolish. So confident, so quick to dispense with answers. My brothers and I grew up on old Saturday Night Live sketches. 
I'm about to age myself a little bit. I'm not sure that any of you will remember this one, but let me try it. Does anybody remember the bucket head sketch? Okay. There's a couple. I'm not, I'm not going to, I won't point them out, but I will say that they might have had gray hair. So them and me, we're in on this. Buckethead was this old Saturday Night Live sketch where a guy accidentally gets a bucket wedged on his head. That's, that's the sketch, right? So, and he's having people over for dinner, and he's hosting new friends, and they're coming in, and he's got a bucket on his head. And, somewhat, and it comes out that he's actually had the bucket on his head for like years. It's, can't get it off, you know? And somebody who's just met him says, hey, well, have you tried soapy water? Soapy mo- water might take care of that. And the guy's like, soapy water? Soapy water, Really? soapy water and he like loses his mind and the rest of the night everything has to do with soapy water because he's going you think I've had a bucket on my head for 15 years and it's never occurred to me that maybe I should try soapy water. great idea soapy water you know so my brothers and I this became like a phrase with us when you hear something absurd you're like oh yeah soapy water sure but the truth is as absurd as a guy with a bucket on his head yelling about soapy water is don't we do this? Someone comes in with a challenge or a struggle that they're walking through, and you go, you know, I've been dealing with this for years, and this heartache and this struggle. And you go, well, have you, have you prayed about it? And they go, 15 years I've been dealing with this addiction. I want nothing more than to be done with it. And, and your question is, that, have I prayed about it? You know, that there's these moments where not that prayer doesn't matter, but the the reality, right, of this moment where we are dealing with people where we don't even pay attention to their context. We haven't slowed down enough. We've got answers and solutions for everyone around us and all the sawdust in their eyeballs. But we haven't paused to consider, what was it like growing up in your home? Oh, you were regularly abandoned. You were abused from the age of 6 to 16. You've never understood what it is to be loved and safe. And here I am looking at you and going, hey, you've got a bucket on your head. And they're like, you haven't even paused long enough to consider what it's like to live in my skin. Would you just stop with the dispensing of solutions for a minute? And would you listen? Would you pay attention? You see, Jesus is beckoning us into a kingdom ethic. When we are the sorts of people that are real religious and together and have all of our solutions and we're just spinning them out for everyone around us, it actually creates a very unsafe place to live. When you're under the exacting gaze of a religious person, there are a few things that feel more exposing where you go, I'm just going to slowly step back from here. Any sense of connection and unity and being known and being loved evaporates under the intensity of this vision and this, this language that is so foolish. He's saying, hey, would you lay down your critical spirit? Because it's dangerous and it's foolish. It's foolish in the way that you see the world. It's foolish in the way that you speak about the world. And so Jesus is saying, lay it down. But then he invites us into something better in verses 5 and 6 because once we've laid it down, what he's inviting us to pick up is familial concern. Familial concern. He says this in verse 5. The first two words of verse 5, by the way, are you hypocrite. Jesus is this brilliant teacher. He gets his 
he gets his friends and all these people out on the hillside. They're all laughing. Their heads are back. Ha, ha, ha. The man with the beam in his eye. Oh, that's funny. And right when their mouths are open in laughter, that's when he inserts the medicine. You know, Jesus is brilliance of a teacher. They're going, oh, oh, that's good. And he goes, listen, you're a hypocrite. And they're like, oh. (laughs) That word hypocrite means pretender, actor. It's used 17 times in the New Testament, and every time it's Jesus speaking to people because Jesus has a very, very short fuse for acting. He's going, hey, this pretending, this religious game that we play where we pretend we have it all together, I have no patience for it. He says, listen, you hypocrite, verse 5. First, take the log out of your own eye. Then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. You see, here's the beautiful reality that Jesus does not want all of us. The end game is not that we all walk around with sawdust in our eyes, with our eyes watering. That's not his intention. He actually wants the sort of loving familial community that can say, brother, sister, I'm concerned about this thing that's happening in your life, and I want to address it in hopes that we can lay that down and we can live in greater freedom. He actually wants us to address one another and say, I think you have sawdust in your eye, but he's telling us how. And he says, do it with humility. When you realize that you have a log in your eye, when you realize that you've been playing games as a pretender, trying to make yourself feel better and stronger by looking down at other people and being critical, he says when you finally get exposed in that place and you're willing to lay it down, and then you look at a friend and you say, I'm really concerned about you. It sounds very different because it's not coming from a heart that's trying to rise up over someone, but it's actually coming from the heart of someone that wants to wash their feet that's limping in with humility and saying, I absolutely understand what you're going through because I go through it in my own way over here. And what I'm saying is, I'm concerned about you. And brother, sister, it doesn't have to be that way anymore. You see, Jesus is inviting us not to never discern anything. He's actually inviting us to do it in the context of familial concern and love, the sort of thing that breeds safety and community, and love, and holiness, as we all are willing to to be dealt with by one another. But the truth is, the eye is incredibly tender, and it just takes one finger jammed in the eye for you to draw back and say, no thanks anymore, that this sort of work requires a tender, patient, calm hand, because as tender as the eye is, the soul infinitely more. And if we're going to be the sort of community that obeys what Jesus is calling us to, we have to lay down every shred of a critical spirit so that we can come humbly to one another and say, hey, I'm concerned about you. I love you. Let's take a step in this area. You see, he's actually inviting us to do it humbly, to pick up familial concern humbly and to do it with real discernment. Did you hear this last verse? If you're just reading quickly, the last verse feels like a curveball. Verse 6 says this, Do not give dogs what is holy, and do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. That strike anyone else is a little bit odd. I think, there's, I think there's a mystery we've got to solve here. Jesus just spent five verses saying, Hey, do not judge. And then he says, Some people are swine. <laughs> Did you hear that? 
Hey, don't judge, but listen, with some people, the dogs and the pigs don't throw your pearls before them. Now, how is that different than what he's calling us away from? Because he just got finished saying don't judge, but that sounds like a judgment. What's he doing there? I think he's helping us understand how we exercise familial concern. We do it with humility, and we do it with real discernment. With real discernment. In saying don't ever judge, Jesus is not saying don't be discerning. In a few verses, in verse 15, he's going to say, watch out for false prophets and false teachers. Pay attention to their lives and pay attention to the fruit of their lives because there are some that need to be rejected. We need to be a discerning people that are able to say, hey, this is true and this is false. This is dangerous. This is good. But he's actually equipping us how to go about doing it. And what he's saying is this. We need to, with humility, be discerning. And so the question is, who are the pigs and the dogs? If we were to ask this of the whole of the scriptures, we don't have time to do a full exploration, but I'll just say this. If you were to look at a place like Proverbs 9, you would learn about the scoffer, and the scoffer rejects all instruction because they are proud and they think they have all the answers. Or you'd turn to a place like Isaiah 56 where the word dogs actually gets used and it means religious leaders that are doing it for their own purposes. Or you go to a place like Philippians 3 where Paul calls the Judaizers dogs because they are so self-righteous and they think you have to do it exactly this way and they're casting out people that haven't kept the religious law in the ways they've deemed it. Do you, see, do you, do you hear theme? What Jesus is talking about and talking about dogs and pigs is he's actually talking about the people that refuse to let go of their critical spirit. He has just equipped us on how to do it. But imagine, here I am coming humbly, divesting myself of my critical spirit and coming low before you. And he's saying some people in that moment are not going to be able to receive it because they won't lay down their critical spirit. And he said, in that moment, just keep moving because there's only two outcomes. Did you hear it? He says that the pigs actually trample the pearls and then they attack you. They will dismiss the message and destroy the messenger. And so how do we practice familial concern for one another with humility and with discernment? And if we're dealing with someone that is proud and unwilling to yield and doesn't want to change, then Jesus says, just keep moving because this is only going to lead to the message getting trampled and the messenger getting destroyed. You see, Jesus is actually equipping us to be the sort of family that lovingly tends to one another, even in the uncomfortable places that we lay down critical spirit and with humility we lovingly address one another. The final question before we close is this. How do you move from one to the other? If you're like me, this word has found you out in a number of ways. My critical spirit is always crouching at the edges. I was walking and preaching this message early down along the down along the bayou and down through the city. And, and there were several moments where I was literally preaching it to the trees and something would catch my eye and I would make a snap judgment. I'm like, oh man, I can be meditating on the words and speaking them out and it's in me. What do we do about the fact that we carry our criticism with us in a deep way and how do we move from being critical to actually engaging in familial concern? If you've been around for a while, I hope you're not surprised by the answer. 
but I hope that you're delighted by it. (laughs) As you set your gaze on Jesus, he can transform hypercritical hearts into real family concern. Follow me on this. Jesus is the only one who's ever lived that actually has the right to sit as a righteous judge over all. He's never had a beam in his eye. He's never had a speck of sawdust in his eye. He has sinned perfectly, sin-free at every moment. And if ever there was anyone who had the right to look at us and our critical spirit and our pride and our folly and our judgment and clean his hands of us and say, I'm done with you. You sow brokenness and division into this beautiful world that I've made, and I'm not going to keep putting up with it. If ever there was anyone that had the position to say that, it was him. And he didn't. It's really good news that the only one, the only one who has the right to sit on the throne, the judge who's at the door and who is coming, the only one, He laid down his critical judgment, his harsh judgment. When he laid down his glory and he came to the earth and he lived the life that we were supposed to live and he divested himself of it when he was stripped naked and he was killed on behalf of your sin and mine. And in his resurrected glory, what he is extending to us is familial concern. By virtue of his completed work, he's extended an invitation to you to come and be family with him, saying, I will be your older brother, saying, sister, brother, you can come home to the family of God. It is only as we realize that we stand condemned before the throne, but he has laid down judgment and replaced it with familial concern that our hearts will be melted, that we can be changed, How could we possibly continue to smuggle our critical spirit in when we realize that we have been loved like that? So receive this good news. Jesus has paid the price to set you free from your critical spirit that will divide you and rob you of relationship and joy. And he's inviting you into real, deep, familial relationship with him and those around you. It has been secured by his blood and it's yours. Let's be the sort of people that that lay down our critical spirit and pick up familial concern to the glory of God. Let me pray for us.